Okay, the last two weeks we were together, we learned about the humble beginnings of Moses' life. Right, we saw God's plan laid out for Moses and how God was going to use him to rescue his people from the slavery of the Egyptians. And in the process of studying his life, we saw how God protected him when he was little. We saw how, how God really provided everything he needed as he lived in, in Egypt. And we also saw at the end of this on how God had this specific plan for him that he chose for him coming up out of Egypt and rescuing his people. But at the same time, we also saw Moses offer excuse after excuse telling God why he wasn't the right person for the job or why God to go, go choose someone else. But what's fascinating in, in understanding this, this interaction and God's choosing of Moses is that none of this would have came to be if it wasn't for two relatively unknown people in Scripture. And their names are Shifra and Pua. These are the two midwives that saved Moses from being killed. If you remember, there was a, a, a new pharaoh that had come, into, um, had come into the power within Egypt. He didn't know anything about Joseph or all the work that Joseph had done um, the years leading up to that. All he knew is he looked around and saw all these Israelites, all these Hebrews all over the place. And all he could think of, these guys are a threat to me and these guys are a threat to the security of our country. So what did he do? He put a plan in place to try to control them. And the first thing he did to try to put them under his thumb, if you will, is to, is to, to push this hard labor on them, to, to drive them, to work them hard so they would be physically exhausted and that hopefully out of this, they wouldn't be able to reproduce and the population would come under control. Well, when that didn't work, things took a little bit of a nastier turn as he tried to put them under his thumb. Look what happened in Exodus chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua, when you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. So let's stop right there and make a couple of observations. The first thing that we notice in the scripture is Moses does not tell us who the king of Egypt was. He doesn't tell us who the Pharaoh was. Is it, did he forget? Well, we don't know what happened, but we do know, we can say with certainty, that it wasn't important that his name recorded in scripture, God did not motivate Moses to write it. But what he did do, he did inspire Moses to record the name of the two midwives, Shifra and Pua. You see, because what they did is significant in God's plan of saving his people. Now, you got to keep in mind, right, while all this is going on, the context here is Egypt is the most powerful nation in the world. Pharaoh would have been the most powerful man in the world. He would have been more powerful than any single person that would pop into our head right now. 
And as we can see in that verse, he was not a very kind ruler, was he? So think about it. You got these two lowly midwives. You got the most powerful man in the world comes to them to have a conversation and tells them exactly what he wants them to do. And how do those midwives respond? Look at verse 17. The midwives, however, feared God and did not want, do not, and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. And Moses was one of those boys. I don't know about you, but this is astonishing to me. That they flat out defy the most powerful man in the world and what he told them to do. You know there would have been some severe penalty put into place if they would have followed what he said. But now some of you may, may look at this and say, whoa, hold on a second, Scott. Isn't what we read here, isn't what we read in verse 17, isn't, isn't, isn't that civil disobedience? Doesn't, doesn't God's word tell us that we're supposed to, to follow and to listen to those that he puts in place over us? Well, that's a good question. And it's actually a very popular question today. As we stare at the two candidates for President of the United States, we are going to have to get to a place where we decide to obey whoever God makes the commander-in-chief of the United States of America. That's what Paul tells us through Romans chapter 13. Take your Bibles and turn with, their, with me, please. Romans chapter 13, verse 1 through 5. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from the fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities. So it's pretty clear, right? God has placed the governing authorities in place. They are his agents. They're going to carry out his plans. Now, we at times may shake our head in complete disbelief on who he chooses for those roles, but nonetheless, it is his choice. You can look through history and see people like Hitler and Napoleon. They did terrible things, but they were placed there by God. But... And there's a very important but that we find in verse five, that we are not to obey them blindly. Look at the rest of verse five. Therefore, it's necessary to submit to the authorities, 
not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. All right, so the first reason that Paul gives us to be submissive is is there's going to be punishment. If you don't listen to the rules they put in place, there's going to be repercussions. Maybe it's a fine, maybe it's jail, or maybe it's death. If you don't listen to who's in charge, there's going to be a price to pay. But then look what he says next. But also our conscience. And what's Paul saying here? He's saying our obedience must not violate our conscience. Right, We have to be in tune with God and God's desires in our life and God's desires for his people. We have to be aware of that and that's the filter in which we look and listen to and obey these commands. You see, it's our conscience that is what motivates us and what moves us to obey God's desires for our lives. And we have to be aware of these. We have to be aware of God because God's chosen leaders that he places in civil authority are going to make decisions and put laws in place which go against his word. And that is exactly what we see with Shifra and Pua. See, they chose not to obey the Pharaoh because they knew in their conscience what he was asking them to do was wrong. They knew in their conscience that what they were asked to do would go against what God wanted. And we also see this clearly modeled for us in the very start of the New Testament church. Take your Bibles, turn to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 4. As you're going, turning there, what I want to do is remind you what's going on, right? Jesus was, was crucified, he was buried, he was resurrected, he spent 40 days walking along with his, with his followers, and then what happened? He was ascended into heaven. As he ascended into heaven, he then, on the day of Pentecost, sent the Holy Spirit into the church, into the believers, which was the great counselor that he had promised. And in the midst of all this going on, Peter was preaching to the people, sharing the gospel. The new the church had started at this point. And then Peter and John left and they go outside and they heal a crippled um, uh, beggar. And with all this stuff going on, it's getting the religious elite all riled up. And look what happens in Acts chapter 4, verses 18 and 20 to 20. Then the Lord called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, judge for yourself, judge for yourself whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and what we are heard. Right? Here it is again. Civil disobedience. Uh, these, 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 um, just with Shifra and Pua, right? They came in, told them not to do something that went against what God desired, and Peter and John decided they are following their own conscience. They're following what God placed on their hearts. 
They can continue to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what happens as a result? Look at chapter 5, verse 17. Then the high priest and all his associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go, stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people the full message of this new life. Remember what we said earlier, right? If you don't obey the civil authorities, there could be a penalty. In this case, we see Peter and John are put in jail. But the angel of the Lord comes and lets them out, right? He's not done with them yet. He's got work for them to do. And they continue to move on and preach. And sure enough, what happens? They get hauled back in again. Look at, stay in chapter five, verse 27. Having brought the apostles, they made them appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in his name, this name, he said, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood, talking about Jesus. And Peter and the rest of the apostles respond consistently with Paul's challenge in Romans. Acts chapter 5, 29, they simply say, we must rather, we must rather obey God. We must obey God rather than man. I love this. Despite what anyone thought, despite the potential penalty, despite what could happen to them, they could not go against their conscience, right? Because they knew what was in their head. Why? Because Jesus told them in his very last words as he left the earth, he told them what to do. Matthew 28, verse 19, go make disciples of all the nations, and that's what they were doing. They weren't going to, to give in or blindly follow some flawed rules of the, of the high priest or the Sanhedrin. They weren't going to let that stand in the way because they conflicted with what God wanted. And as a result, they paid an earthly price again. But look how they respond, keeping Acts chapter 5, verse 40. They called the apostles in, and they had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from the house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Christ Jesus is the Christ. They never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus was indeed the Christ. No matter who said what to them, no matter who they offended, no matter what the possible repercussion was, they did not follow the religious elite in, in, in blind obedience. And this is exactly what we see with Shifra and Pua. See, their conscience told them to follow what God wanted, not man. Not even the most powerful man in the world at that time. This is incredible faith displayed by these two women. 
And, and I'd love to think that, that we would want to respond in the same way that if we were faced with a similar challenge and a similar opportunity. So the question is, where did this strength come from to stand up to the most powerful man in the world? Where did this courage come from to stare down what was wrong and to do what was right? Our answer comes from Exodus chapter 1, verse 17. Go back there with me. The midwives, however, what happened? Feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. See, we see right here in this verse, they feared God more than they feared man. Now, don't kid yourself. You know that they would expect some sort of repercussion if they were to be found out from the Pharaoh. Anything could have been possible. But they did not give in because they knew that giving in to what Pharaoh wanted was against what God wanted. And it led them to saving Moses' life and keeping God's plan intact to use Moses to save his people. So what I want to do with the balance of our time is I want to spend our time looking closely at this fear of God and how do we get it and what it is and what it means to our lives. Now all of this is in your bulletin notes. You can follow along and write this down so you can keep it because it's incredibly appointing to our journey with Christ. Now when we, to get started, it's important that we realize here that this fear of God is not a negative fear. Right? Negative fear is what they would have had of Pharaoh. They would have been fearful of the penalty, fearful of being thrown in jail, fearful of being put in death, right? A negative fear. And it's natural for us to think of fear when we hear the word in a negative connotation. Because the very word fear in our English language comes from the Greek word phobia. Right? And we all know that phobias are, have a negative context to them, right? Psychology books are filled with phobia after phobia after phobia that are unhealthy fears of things like spiders and lights and all kinds of different stuff. Right? Acrophobia is the fear of heights. That one's mine. I own that one. Anyone you with me? Yeah, a lot of you. I'm in good company. All right, what? Well, dykephobia is the fear of justice. How about theophobia? a morbid fear of God. Now clearly when we read this passage, this is not the type of fear that we see demonstrated by Shifra and Pua. Right? Theophobia, this, this type of fear of God doesn't produce anything positive. It, it, it's negative. A, a, a morbid fear of God, is, it's, it's paralyzing. It's terrifying. It stops us in our tracks. It makes us afraid. But if we're honest, most of us, if we read this verse just reading through it, we would think of it in a negative term. Right? Well, they feared God. Well, they're afraid, man. If I do what, what Pharaoh tells me, God's going to get even with me. He's going to somehow avenge and take out revenge on me 
for making the wrong decision, right? And we've seen some bad things happen in scripture, right? When, when God can just, has just zapped people. So it's easy to, to, to read this and read the negativity into it. But you see, this type of fear is not constructive. This type of fear is not what God is looking for and is certainly not the type of fear that we see demonstrated by Shifra and Pua. In fact, the fear we see with these two women are exactly the opposite. It is a positive fear. Or maybe better said, it's a healthy fear. And so, what is a healthy fear of God? What does that look like? Well, why don't we start by defining fear of God? Now, I, I worked at this and, and, and came up with a, a definition of, of fear in God. This isn't something you're going to find in the Bible. Well, obviously you're going to find it in the Bible, but this, these exact words in this order aren't going to point to a specific verse. You're not going to find this in a theology book. But this is a foundation because there are not enough adjectives to put into place to describe who God is. Listen to this. Fear of God is the belief in the all-powerful, all-knowing creator God revealed through nature and scripture with complete amazement, awestruck wonder of his goodness and graciousness and a deep desire to do everything he asks to please him and avoid his wrath. Fear of God is belief in the all-powerful, all-knowing, creator God, revealed through nature and scripture, with complete amazement and awestruck wonder of his goodness and graciousness, and a deep desire to do everything he asks to please him and to avoid his wrath. See, there's nothing negative here. It's, it's holding God in a place way above us. Understanding what his position is as creator of the universe and what he does and what he knows and what his power is. See, a healthy fear of God is, is, is demonstrated through, through a, an attitude of awe, an attitude of wonder, of worship, of reverence, this overwhelming feeling of who God is in our lives. This is not a, an unhealthy fear that leaves us trembling, shaking in our boots, paralyzed and alienated from God. See, a healthy fear of God does not leave us in terror or in distress of what God's gonna do to us. A healthy fear of God is in amazement and in wonder of who he does and how much he loves us. So it leads us to the question, how do we develop this fear of God? How do we get this fear of God to demonstrate it in such a way that we see with Shifra and Pua? Well, to start it's important to realize that we are not naturally wired to fear God. David writes in Psalm 36 about the wickedness of our hearts. Psalm 36.1, an oracle was within my heart concerning the sinfulness of the wicked. There is no fear of God 
before his eyes. See, that's the state we're in before we know God, the wickedness that rules our heart. What's that from? That's from the sin that was passed down from Adam from generation to generation to generation to every single one of us. And that wickedness in our lives, that wickedness that controls our heart before we come to know the Lord, it manifests itself in a complete disregard for the reality of and the need for God in our lives. We are completely ignorant to the fact of needing God in our lives. We're not wired that way. So since it doesn't come naturally to us, where does it come from? Well, the fear of God has to be put there by God himself. Look at Jeremiah chapter 32, dropping stuff. Verse 39, 40. I will give them singleness of heart and action so that they will always fear me for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make an everlasting covenant with them, God says. I will never stop doing good to them. And look what it says. I will inspire them to fear me so that they will never turn away from me. You see, it's God's prerogative to shape man's heart. It's God's prerogative to to grasp man's heart and to turn it to him. It's God's prerogative to set our heart right. It's God's prerogative to turn our heart to him. It's God's prerogative to make us fear him. God puts that here. But although it's God's prerogative to turn our heart to him, God's prerogative to have our heart fear him, it's our responsibility to grow in that fear of God by studying his word to learn more about him. That's our part. And we see Moses writes in the book of Deuteronomy, the most important qualification for a king was a personal, personal knowledge of the law of God. Personal knowledge. They've got to know it inside of their heart. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 19. It is to be with him, and he is to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully his law in their, these decrees. Moses is saying to revere, to have reverence, the king has to know the law. He has to know what God wants from him. God has, the king has to know what God expects of him. And in fact, the very Hebrew word translated revere here is yar, which is the same word translated fear in Exodus chapter 1, verse 17, when it says Shifra and Pua revered or feared the Lord. So now that we understand where this fear comes from and how it grows, so the question begs itself is, what is this fear for? What's what's the purpose of it? Why should we fear him? Well, first, God requires us to. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 to 13. And now, Israel... 
what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Do you see that? God commands us to fear, walk, love, serve, and keep. Five imperatives that God gives to us. And the, the, order, the order of those imperatives are important. He starts with the fear of God. It's got to start with fearing me before you can walk, love, serve, and keep my commandments, you have to be fearful of me. You have to stand in awe of me. You have to be awestruck by me. Then the others follow. Well, why is that? Why does it start with fearing the law? This is what we start to understand what he wants and desires from us. This is where knowledge begins. Consider what the wise King Solomon wrote when he gave the reason of why he wrote the book of Proverbs. Chapter one, verse seven. The fear is of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and discipline. King David also speaks of the importance of learning how to fear God. Psalm 34, verses 11 to 14. Come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Whoever loves life and desires to see many good days, keep your tongues from evil and your lips from speaking lies. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. But see, it's not knowledge for the sake of knowledge. It's not knowledge to fill our heads. So what does this knowledge that starts, right? The fear of God. Fear of God leads to knowledge. And what does this knowledge do? Well, this knowledge and this fear of God helps us curb our disobedience. Look what Moses says later on in the book of Exodus in chapter 20, verse 20. Moses said to the people, don't be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you and keep you from sinning. You see the nuance in this passage? He starts by saying, don't be afraid, right? Negative fear. Don't be paralyzed. Don't be stopped dead in your tracks. Don't be afraid to move. But the fear of God will be with you to what? Keep you from sinning. The healthy fear, healthy fear of God produces something positive. It curbs our penchant to sin. And look what the writer of Hebrews says about leading a sinful life, right? We've got this knowledge. We understand God's word. God's turned our heart towards him. We know what God desires of us, but yet if we live in willful disobedience, Something's going to happen. Look at the um, book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verse 26 to 31. Hebrews chapter 10, 26 to 31. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of truth, there's the knowledge again, no sacrifice for sins is left. 
but only a fearful expectation of judgment, negative, and raging fire that will consume the negative of God, the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated us as unholy thing, the blood of the covenant, and sanctified him, and who has insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You see, a healthy fear, this reverence of God, is what what helps prod us, which helps motivates us, which helps encourage us to, 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 to lead a life that's pleasing to him, to carry out what God places in front of us, to do the work that he asks us to do. This healthy fear of God makes us understand this is what's at stake. And the benefits of having a healthy fear of God are clear. Hebrews chapter 14, verses 26 to 27, he who has fear of the Lord has a secure fortress, and for his children it will be a refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, turning man from the snares of death. A fear of God provides security and protection from a life of ruin. You see, when we have a healthy fear of God and and, and revere him, it it, it protects us, it guides us, it keeps us close to him. And not only us, but also our children who follow our example and watch us. Proverbs 19.23, the fear of the Lord leads to life. Then one rests content. Who doesn't want to be content? Untouched by trouble. And we see these proverbs ring true in the life of Shifra and Pua. As we're going to see in just a minute, the Pharaoh finds out what they did and he calls them to come in front of them. Turn back to Exodus chapter, verse 18 and 19, chapter 1. It says, Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. Now commentators are are split in about three different ways on on, on the the, um, interpretation of this passage. One group says it happened just like it, it says it did, that it just by chance that they're just more vigorous women and they couldn't get there in time. Another group of commentators believe that the midwives are actually just flat out lying to Pharaoh. And and in the third group, which I tend to align myself with, is, is that because they feared God, because they were in reverence of him, because they knew what God wanted, that the midwives put a plan in place to make sure that the midwives would show up late after the child was born to give the mother a chance to save the baby. And how does God respond to their obedience? Look at verse 20 and 21 in Exodus 1. So God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. 
And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. God blessed them with families of their own. Obviously, what's implicit in that is they didn't have families before that. Probably unmarried or probably barren. But because of their obedience, because of their reverence for God, because of their fear of him, because of their acknowledgement of who he was, God chose to bless them with the most precious gift. Psalm 127.3, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. In reality, we are just scratching the surface of this topic, fear of the Lord. We are just picking at it. We could spend a 12-week sermon series talking about fear of the Lord. We've laid out some, some fundamental building blocks for you to, to pick up the study on your own. And I challenge you to do that because this is foundational to our walk with Christ. So as we close, I have one question for you. Do you fear God? Do you fear creator God? Do you look at the creator God who revealed himself through nature and through scripture with a sense of wonderment, with a sense of amazement, with a sense of awestruck wonder for what he is doing in this world, for what he is doing in your personal life. Do you fear God? Or do you fear man? Do you fear that if you were to share your faith with your family, with your friends, with your neighbors, or with your coworkers, that you would be ignored or you would be put out of the friend group or you may not get the promotion that you thought that you deserved? Do you fear God? We're going to sing together as a church the song, Whom Shall I Fear? The talks about the God, the creator, God of the universe, our personal God that knows us intimately, how he goes before us, how he stands behind us, how he walks by our side, that there's no one to fear but him. And as that truth settles in your heart as we sing these lyrics together, I'm going to leave you with a quote from Oswald Chambers. It says, the remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas, if you don't fear God, you fear everything else. Do you fear God?